Father, we come now to your word and we give you our eyes, we give you our ears, we give you our hearts, we give you our attention. Lord, we give you our affection because you and you alone are worthy of our praise. You and you alone are the name above all names and the king above all kings and the Lord above all lords. And you and you alone are worthy of the worship of your people. So fathers, we turn to your word this morning and we consider what it means not just to surrender our treasure, but to surrender our hearts, our entire selves to you. Would you help us to see one more time the greatest treasure that we receive through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see him clearly today through your word. Father, show us now where we are out of step with you, where our ambitions and our desires and our wants are running after lesser things than you. And would you draw us back into right alignment in our walk with you and our relationship with you? Would you speak truth today to all of us? Father, speak words to us today that will edify your church and bring glory to the name of your son, Jesus Christ, because he is worthy of our praise. Sanctify us now in the word of your truth. Your word is truth. Speak it to our hearts this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, if you're not there already, I'm gonna invite you to turn with me in your Bible. James chapter five is where we'll spend our time together this morning looking at verses one through six. If you're our guest, my name's Taylor and I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. We're glad to have you worshiping here with us today. And um, for the last few months, our church family has been walking verse by verse through the book of James. And we are on the home stretch, getting into chapter five together this morning. And Lord willing, we're gonna wrap this up together on Christmas Eve morning here in just a couple of weeks. So again, James chapter five, we're going to spend our time together looking at verses one through six. A few weeks ago, we had the privilege of hosting a pastor from South America um, who is part of the family of churches that we're networked with, the Acts 29 network. And um, uh, he and his family are planting a church. They were here visiting and we'd never met them before. And, um, and man, I, I want to say before I share uh, the things that he shared with me, the first five minutes of my meeting with them, they could not stop talking about how friendly you guys were. And I just want to commend you this morning. Um, they are literally in a foreign country. English is not their first language. They've never met any of us before. None of us had ever met them before. And they just said from the moment they got out of their car until the day they left the building that day, they were just overwhelmed by the love and the welcome they received from you. And so we thank you so much for that. And the Sunday after they worshiped with us, I, I met with them for just a couple of hours and listened a little bit to their heart and to their story. And and as they shared all these things, and we were closing up our time together, uh, the, the pastor looked at me and, and he had tears in his eyes. And he said, everything you have here, the, these people that you have, this building that you have, he said, this, this is our dream. This is our dream. And it was one of those just perspective changing conversations for me because I'm sitting there listening and, and, and you know, we're, we're as we moved into this building six months ago, that day I was in a meeting where we were talking about taking those next steps for our parking expansion. Amen. Like Lord knows we need that right now. And, and, and I'm looking at this thing, man, this is a challenge. This is a problem, but it's one of those perspective conversations where I once again, walk away being reminded our problems aren't problems. That, that what we consider right now to be a burden, man, this is actually somebody else's dream. He said, when we come to this country, it's like being on a completely different planet. 
We don't understand how anybody would want to leave this country. And more than that, he said, we don't understand how American Christians don't realize what they have. And it's just one of those conversations that that has just stuck with me over the last couple of weeks because it it reminded me, and this text we're looking at this morning reminds us once again, the day is going to come where we stand before the Lord and we give account for how we utilized and leveraged all of the material possessions that he entrusted to us. And on the day of judgment, our relationship to things is really only going to go one of two possible ways. On that day, either our money or our material possessions could be pointed to as evidence of a life that has been lived in faithful generosity to the glory of God, or it will stand against us as evidence that we lived lives of materialistic greed for our own selves. And so what James shows us this morning in this passage in James 5, 1 through 6 is the reminder that money cannot buy us anything on the day of judgment, but it can cost us everything when we stand before the judge. You can look at a dollar bill, you can look at a coin and find out what it is worth, but do you and I understand what money costs? That's what we're going to see as we open up James chapter 5 this morning. Before we read the text again, I, I want to just go ahead and make sure we set the tone for this this morning, because as we read these six verses, we've already read this passage once this morning, these are heavy words, right? Like it's, 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 this isn't exactly a passage. It's easy for me to kind of jump in and just, just kind of lighten up the mood a little bit. Um, the tone of what James is writing here, this is a warning text. This is a rebuking text. And so there's going to be a lot of challenge for us today. And so listen, this is what we believe as a church. If you're new with us, we believe that all scripture has been given to us by God. And we believe that all scripture, even if it's uncomfortable is for our good. So church today, this is one of those days that we have just got to let the word of God be the word of God and receive what it's speaking into our lives. So from James chapter one, I want to read again verses one through three. This is the warning here from James. He says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, before we we start unpacking these verses a little bit together this morning, I want to make sure we understand the context of who exactly James is writing to and how this is going to apply to us where we are 2,000 years later today. We know that earlier in the book of James, from James chapter two, that even as the believers assembled together, that sometimes wealthy unbelievers would come in and be a part of their worship gatherings. And part of what James writes against in this letter is that there were some believers who were giving preferential treatment and playing favorites um, to wealthy unbelievers who came into their assembly. And the hope was that um, they would give them greater social standing outside of the church. And so James writes against this back in chapter two. He rebukes these things. And, And so we know that a Among those, even who were gathered together, there would be some who were wealthy, who were not believers, but primarily uh, the wealthy unbelievers were those who were outside of the worship gathering, who were oppressing Christians, who were very much a religious minority at this time. And so it might leave you wondering the question, okay, why would James in his letter write to rebuke um, unbelievers who might not have even been present for what was here? Who's he actually preaching to here if most of these people weren't physically in the room? 
What James is doing here really follows in the footsteps of a lot of the Old Testament prophets where whenever they were speaking the word of God to God's people in either Israel or Judah, they would oftentimes indict the surrounding nations even though those nations weren't physically present with them in the moment. And the reason why they would do this was number one, to let God's people know, hey, this is what God thinks about the actions of the nations and especially if those nations were oppressing the believers, um, it was letting them know this is not falling on deaf ears. Like God is seeing all of this and his justice is going to come for them. So it's primarily in that rebuke addressed to those who are outside of God's people, but then it also becomes then a warning for God's people, hey, don't fall into these things. Because if we fall into these patterns, these are things we're shown that God's judgment is ultimately going to fall upon. So again, the tone of this text this morning, it's a tone of warning all throughout. It's a tone of caution. And the first warning that James lays out for us in verses one through three is this. Don't store up treasure on the wrong side of eternity. Don't store up treasure on the wrong side of eternity. Last week, we saw where James addressed business owners who conducted their business without any sort of thought to just how short their lives were. We're reminded in the end of James chapter four that your life is a vapor. Your life is a mist. We saw last week, your life is not here today, gone tomorrow. It's here today and gone today. It's a mist. It appears for a while and then it's gone. And on the scale of eternity, um, what we see with the, the temporary nature of our lives, they go quickly and then immediately we find ourselves in the place of judgment. In the first century, landowners controlled much of the Roman Empire and they often used and leveraged their power to mistreat the poor, especially Christians who were at the time a religious minority. And so in verse one, James gives one of the most visceral warnings of God's judgment in the entire New Testament. This is all prophetic, apocalyptic language. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This text is a sobering reminder, friends, that that every material thing we own has an expiration date. James says this, he says, your riches have rotted. It's the reminder that all of our stuff is eventually gonna fall apart. He says, your garments are moth-eaten. Every article clothing that you own is eventually gonna wear out. He says, your gold and silver have corroded, so the day's going to come where our money will be completely worthless. It feels like we're getting a little bit closer to that every day, amen? That day's coming. Every dollar you have, every material possession that you own, it all has an expiration date. It all has a shelf life. I was given a very vivid reminder of this about 11 years ago. Um, After my dad passed away, I was helping my mom move out of the house that our family had really grown up in. And this house had a really big basement. And uh, as uh, basements tend to do, it started to accumulate a bunch of junk over the course of many years. And, And so I was tasked with really cleaning out this basement while my mom was in the process of moving. And, and as we're going through, the, this, this basement had, had a little bit of water damage at a couple different points. And the water damage had impacted more things than we initially thought. Because um, down there, we've got furniture. There's like old mattresses. There's, um, there, there's clothes that, you know, from when we were really little, even through like when we were uh, growing up, there were old toys, a bunch of old electronics. And, and so I'm going through all this stuff. It was this sobering reminder. All of these things that I wanted so badly when I was growing up, there, there were toys that had been absolutely destroyed by water damage, no longer salvageable, that I wanted so badly when I was a kid and I was so excited when I got them. Clothes that I remember, man, I was so jealous as a teenager when my friends had these things, when they had that pair of jeans or that pair of shoes or that hat and I wanted it and I finally got it. 
there were a lot of, a couple of old video game consoles that my brother and I had spent many, many hours upon that no longer functioned, that we just devoted so much time and attention to. All these things, we are literally piling it into industrial trash bags and hauling it off to the dump. And at the time, I was, I was driving this little uh, Ford Ranger pickup truck. And, and I made just, I don't even know how many trips over the next few days, either to, to Goodwill to donate things that were salvageable or just to throw into the trash. All of these things that we had accumulated across decades. Guys, this is one of the greatest tragedies of human existence. We will forfeit our souls for stuff that one day is gonna end up in a yard sale. I mentioned this really briefly last week. Like, does it ever occur to you that one day somebody else is gonna go through all of your stuff? And whatever they're not gonna keep, they're gonna, they're gonna get their 2004 Ford Ranger and they're gonna back it up to your house and they're gonna pile in as many bags as they possibly can and the stuff that they can't, that they maybe can be salvaged, at best it's gonna be donated to somebody else and at worst it's just gonna go into a trash pile somewhere else. This is a sobering reminder for us. Nothing that we have is going to last forever. And yet what James reminds us of this morning is that our relationship to earthly possessions can carry with it eternal consequences. This is, again, this is so discomforting, disquieting for us. I mean, we, just, we gotta let the word of God be the word of God here for just a moment. In verse three, we see one of the most graphic depictions of hell that is found anywhere in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 20 describes hell as, as a lake of fire. And in verses two and three, James shows us that our money and material possessions can ultimately become the fuel that feed the flames. He says this in verse three. He said, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. This is a really, really graphic picture here. James is not painting a picture of a hell where you never see all the stuff that you love again. He, he's actually painting a picture of it where we are surrounded by it night and day for all eternity. And we are tormented by the very things that we loved more than Jesus. It will be there as a continual reminder. We will cry out to it to save and it will be completely helpless to save. That, that's the picture that James lays out for us this morning. It's, it's an eternity where we are surrounded by all of this stuff that we loved so much, but we're not receiving it as a blessing. We're receiving it as a curse. But man, this is the good news of the gospel. This is completely avoidable. It does not at all have to be this way. This is a completely avoidable reality. And Jesus lays out for us in Matthew chapter six, an alternate reality of how things can go in our relationship to possessions. In the Sermon on the Mount, which we studied together as a church last year, Jesus says this in Matthew six nineteen through 21. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, don't miss this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Laying up treasures here on earth is an exercise in futility. The day is going to come that moth will destroy fabric. Rust will destroy metal. And even if natural contaminants don't destroy all of our possessions, there's always gonna be the threat of thieves who will try to break in and steal. So please this morning, friends, hear the words of James, hear the words of Jesus. Your stuff is not going to last forever, but your soul will. 
And so God's word calls us today, store up treasure on the right side of eternity. And listen, if you want to store up treasure in heaven, it begins by receiving the treasure of heaven, and that's Jesus Christ. When you receive Jesus as your treasure, you find contentment and satisfaction in your soul. The vice grip that stuff has on you in this life, suddenly it begins to open up and you are free from the need to live for stuff as you live a life that's set apart for your savior, Jesus Christ. Your stuff is not going to last forever, but your soul will. You know, many of you have heard me say this many times before, and I think this is appropriate again for this morning. In our cultural context, I've almost gotten completely away from asking the question to someone, are you a Christian? I think that is an utterly meaningless question here in the Bible Belt South, because that can mean about 100 different things to 100 different people. I think this is the much, much better question that we should be asking ourselves and asking others, not are you a Christian? Let me ask you this, is Jesus Christ your treasure? Is he your greatest treasure? Is he what's at the top of your affections? Do you treasure him above all things? Have money and possessions release their vice grip on your heart as you found freedom in him? If you want to store up treasure in heaven, then receive the treasure of heaven. Receive Jesus Christ. Verse four, James goes on uh, to give this uh, indictment as well. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So warning number one, don't store up treasure on the wrong side of eternity. Warning number two, don't conduct business in ways that lack integrity. This is pretty straightforward for us here this morning. Verse four, James really intensifies this indictment. Not only have these people built a luxurious lifestyle, they've done it by not paying the people who work for them. That's really messed up, right? We, we know that this is wrong. First century context, most agricultural workers were paid by receiving daily wages. And holding back somebody's wages for one day might not feel like a big deal to you if you have a lot of money, but it feels like a really big deal to somebody who's living day to day. And so these people, they've completed work for them. They've done work for them. They either haven't paid them for the work that they've done, or they paid them less than what they promised to pay. And to do this, James shows us, is to fall under the condemnation and judgment of the Lord. But again, don't miss this this morning. If God's expectation for the unbelieving rich is that they conduct their business with integrity, how much more true is this for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ? If God has that expectation even for unbelievers that they're going to be held accountable for the way that they did or did not care for people, whether or not they operated ethically and with integrity, if unbelievers are going to be held accountable for this, how much more for those of us who are followers of Christ? Um, not long after Emily and I got married, I got this job, and, and during the interview process, I, uh, I had been um, I promised some things related to salary and to benefits and to future opportunities and to support that I was going to receive because I was taken over for somebody who oversaw a lot of other people, and they wanted to make sure that was a seamless transition. Um, but about six months into this particular role, um, none of these promises had been fulfilled. And so I go to sit down and discuss this with the leadership and just say, hey, you know, just, this is what we talked about on the front end. And this has been the, the actual reality of where we are right now. And suddenly, magically, the group of people who hired me got collective amnesia and forgot about all those conversations. Um, your boy learned on that day, get everything in writing. Amen. And uh, let's have something that's canon that we can go back to. And that sounds bad enough for any business or any organization 
it, it feels a little bit worse when I tell you the place I was working for was a church. If God has this expectation for unbelievers to conduct their business with integrity, how much more does he expect this of those who are followers of Jesus? Listen, if as a follower of Christ, you're an employer, you have other people who report to you, one of the greatest evangelistic opportunities that you have is to love and take very good care of all of the people that work for you. Listen, I've talked to a lot of business owners in our community and I I get it, like economic realities mean the cost of business has gotten more expensive. Um, Every every restaurant owner in town that I know is like, it is impossible for us to stay staffed. That's a reminder for us, show grace everywhere that you go. Um, They're they're working towards this. Uh, Cost of doing business has gotten higher, having to pay people more, products are more expensive. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, I just wanna challenge you if you have people who work for you, do your very best, do everything you can within your capacity to take care of the people who are working for you. This is one of your greatest evangelistic opportunities that you have. Because if we conduct business in ways that lack integrity, if we're, we're not true to our word and the promises that we make to people, this, this type of action maligns the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's absolutely detrimental to faithful Christian witness. And there's a warning here from James this morning. If you conduct business without integrity, the day is going to come when you answer to the judge. This is what James says in verse four. He, he says that the cries of the harvesters, those who have not been paid, have reached the Lord of hosts. So this is the picture that James is painting this morning. The God of angel armies, the Lord of hosts, he literally stands ready to sweep in and pursue justice and take vengeance on those who have caused wrongful harm to people who have worked for them. So the warning here for employers is this, if it, you invite God's judgment when you defraud others and withhold pay that's rightly, rightfully owned, but the promise for employees is this, is that if you are in a position today where you're in a job, you're being unjustly defrauded or you're being wrongfully exploited, your cry is not falling on deaf ears. The Lord of hosts hears your voice and you can have confidence that one day the, ju- the day of justice is going to come. It doesn't mean that you, as a a Christian, that you just have to sit there and suffer in silence. You you are more than free to pursue a job where you feel like you'll be treated more fairly. You have legal rights under state and federal laws that you can appeal to. You're not going against your faith uh, by appealing to your legal rights as an employee. So take advantage of all the rights that are afforded to you, but this is what James shows us. While we can take advantage of our rights, we don't have to take vengeance ourselves. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. We can trust that even if we are treated unjustly, the day is going to come where God is going to make all of the wrongs right once again. Verse five, James goes on to give us another warning here. He says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Here's the indictment. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So don't store up treasure on the wrong side of eternity and don't conduct business in ways that lack integrity. Third, what James shows us this morning is this. Don't be comfortable living a life of self-indulgent luxury. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are not called to lives of self-indulgence. We are called to lives of self-sacrifice. The gospel message tells us that God loved us so much that he gave us his son, Jesus Christ. And so you and I are called to be people who give generously in response to everything that God has given to us. 
And so this intensifies a little bit more here. So withholding the wages of these workers, it's not just afforded these employers a life of of ease. It's it's afforded them a life of luxury and self-indulgence. And you and I too, if we're not if we're not careful, we'll lose perspective of of our position globally and who we are as followers of Jesus Christ in the West. And and we can, without even realizing it, find ourselves slipping into some of these traps of living lives of luxury and self indulgence. As we sit here this morning, there's over 700 million people globally who let who live less on less than two dollars per day. In the United States, over 37 million people currently live below the poverty line, and children account for about a third of those numbers. By every measurable objective, you and I are among the wealthiest Christians who have ever walked the face of the earth. And that's an incredible privilege. That's an incredible responsibility to be faithfully steward. But the word of God reminds us of this. To whom much is given, much will be expected. Much has been given to us, which means much is going to be expected of us. And, and this is especially true for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ here in the West. You know, globally, uh, American Christians, we only make up about 5% of the global Christian population. And actually, majority Christianity is, is currently shifting more to the global South. You're seeing incredible movements of, of revival and awakening all across the Southern Hemisphere today. So American Christians, we only make up about 5% of the global Christian population, but we are in control of of about 50% of the global Christian resources. The Lord has entrusted us with much. And so you and I have to make sure we don't fall into the trap of getting comfortable with being comfortable. We gotta make sure we're not drifting into the trap of of living lives of of exorbitant self-indulgence and luxury while many brothers and sisters across the globe today go without anything at all. The Lord has entrusted much to us. I hope you don't, don't miss this this morning. First Timothy chapter six, the apostle Paul talks about how the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so I wanna, wanna clarify a little bit this morning. There's nothing in the Bible that's against you having money. There's not even anything in scripture against you being wealthy, against you saving money. We, we see this all the way through the book of Proverbs in particular. Proverbs 6 praises the ant for working hard in the spring and the summer so that it can have sufficient food for the winter. Proverbs 13 says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children. Proverbs 21.20 shows us that saving for the future is wise. So understand, James is not forbidding having money or having material possessions, because if he did, he'd be contradicting several other clear places from Scripture. James isn't writing to the person who's working wisely to prepare for the future. He is writing to the person who is greedy, who thinks only of themselves, and who has put all of their hopes in possessions. Guys, the problem is not having money. The problem is when money has you. It's not a sin to own material possessions. It's a sin when they begin to take ownership of you. When they are what is at the top of your affections, where you're storing up treasure on earth rather than treasuring Jesus Christ in your heart and storing up eternal treasure in heaven. The problem is not having money. The problem is when money has us. And so th- this is, I think, a really important question for us to have. Because if you know, you're like me, you're, you're thinking about, man, your kids and you're thinking about retirement. You want to save for the future. And I think it's, it's an important question for us to ask ourselves, okay, then how much is too much? Like what, what is that fine line between just trying to live wisely and save for the future and then actually drifting into a life of sinful self-indulgence and luxury? 
Here's a really clear, important baseline question I think you could ask yourself today. So if you are trying to save for your future, you desire to save for your future, ask yourself this this morning. Am I saving so that I can afford the cost of living or am I saving because I want to avoid a life that costs? Am I saving to, avoid, to, to afford the cost of living? I just wanna make sure in the future I can pay my bills, I can leave something for my kids, that, that I, can, I can just continue serving the Lord faithfully once I step away from my vocation, or are you saving because you actually wanna be able to live a life that doesn't require you to sacrifice in any way? And that's a really important question. One of the ways that we can tell that material things and money have a grip on our hearts is when we start to treat luxuries like necessities at the expense of our generosity. Are are you saving because you just want to be able to afford your life or are you saving because what you really want is a life where you don't have to have a care in the world at all and doesn't require sacrifice? Listen, it's not wrong to save for the future, but don't forget what we saw just last week you're not promised tomorrow. It's okay to save for the future, but just remember, you're not even promised the rest of this day. And so we have to be very, very careful that even in our wisdom and desire to save, we don't drift into the comfort, the sinful comfort of self-indulgent luxury. I think this is a great prayer that all of us should commit to praying from Proverbs 30, verses eight and nine. This is what's written in this proverb about our relationship to money, a good prayer before the Lord. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Love this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful. Everybody say needful. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? I don't need him. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are not called to lives of self-indulgence. We are called to lives of sacrifice. And listen, even in our generosity, please don't buy into the prosperity gospel. We do not primarily give because we want God to give us more. Being a Christian means you give because you have already been given everything you need in Jesus Christ. You have received your greatest treasure. You no longer have to be tethered to the things of this world because you have received everything you need in Jesus. And one of the clearest evidences that we have truly received Christ as our greatest treasure in this life is that we are eager to hold it with an open hand to be used as an instrument for his glory. So don't get comfortable drifting into a life of self-indulgent luxury. James closes this passage, verse six. Once again, with an indictment, he says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So four warnings we've seen this morning. Don't store up treasure on the wrong side of eternity. Don't conduct your business in ways that lack integrity. Don't be comfortable living a life of self-indulgent luxury. Fourth and finally this morning, James warns us, don't think that you can act without accountability. The Lord sees all of these things. As we sit here in this room this morning, um, there are about 50 million people worldwide who are suffering under some type of slavery or system of human trafficking with about 25% of those being children. Globally, Christians are persecuted by having their wages withheld, by having their assets frozen. And so the things that were happening in the book of James to these believers who were receiving this letter, they continue to happen to believers all across the world today. 
But this is one of the most powerful marks of the believers that we see in James chapter five through six. They are enduring persecution, but they endure that persecution without resorting to retaliation. His indictment against the rich unbelievers who were oppressing them is you have condemned and murdered the righteous person, but his testimony of the believers was this, he does not resist you. He does not resist you. Again, as you read through scripture, it doesn't mean that people never appeal to legal rights. It doesn't mean that they never appeal to their personal freedoms. It doesn't mean those things. But again, what is the title of the message series that we're in right now? Count it all joy. Some of the first words of the book of James, count it all joy, not if, but when you endure trials of various kinds. This was the trial. They were facing oppression. They were facing persecution from a world that absolutely hated them. And part of the reason why they were able to step away from needing to retaliate themselves is because these believers fully trusted that vengeance was in the hands of the Lord. That one day, either on this side of eternity or the next, ultimate justice would be accomplished at the hand of God. Again, guys, I, I know, man, I, I can promise you, like, it's, it's not like fun. It's not like a day at Disney World for me to get up here and talk about hell this morning. I hope you understand that. But, but I think that the mistake that many of us have made, but Western believers, man, we, we have so many modern sensibilities. Some of us think we can be more loving than Jesus. So, some of us think we, we can do a better job of leading people to truth apart from what we find in Scripture. We, we got to push against that. Who is the one person in Scripture who talked about hell more than anybody else? It was Jesus. If we're going to faithfully follow Jesus, we have to step into these things. I know it's uncomfortable. And, and sometimes I think what we're guilty of, because we so desire for God to be seen as loving and as gracious and as merciful and as forgiving. We don't want to get into judgment. We don't want to get into condemnation. But here's what we end up doing whenever we throw out this very difficult subject. Whenever we eliminate hell from the teachings of Jesus, what we do is we eliminate God's judgment which means we eliminate God's justice, which means we have eliminated God's love. If there is no ultimate judgment, it means there really are some people who just get away with murder. If there is no ultimate judgment to come, it really means human traffickers and child abusers, there is no ultimate, it's all just hopeless the way that it is today. If we don't trust that that's there, if we don't believe that that's there, then we are forced to resign ourselves to the fact that, yeah, there are just some evil things that people are absolutely going to get away with, with no hope for redemption. But these believers, they were, they were able to, to walk through this persecution without retaliation because they knew there is a God that, yes, he's a loving father, but he's also a judge, ju just judge, and none of this is escaping his eye. Dane Ortland has, has written a really helpful book on hell. I'd encourage, as, as uncomfortable as that is, he'll say, hey, go to Amazon, buy a book on hell today. It's probably not what you wanted to hear, but, but it's, it's such an important subject. It's important that we have a healthy understanding of, of what God's word actually teaches about this. Because again, some of us, I think we, we grew up in backgrounds, like just a really, really unhealthy understanding of, of what is the nature and the purpose and the intention of hell. And he, he writes this. I think it's so important for, for this text today. He says, if we do not believe in hell, if we think the only justice and retribution to be had is in this life, then we must take revenge into our own hands. Without hell, justice must be forcibly executed by us or it will not be executed at all. What if all wrongs were never righted, but simply hung in the air of injustice eternally, never vindicated, never addressed, never brought out into the light? 
What if all wrongs against you were yours to sort out before you die, not God's to sort out after you die? That would be hellish indeed. And that is precisely how the world tends to operate and how many Christians wrongly operate. Thinking justice must be exacted by them in the present, not by God in the future. But calm and peace begin to break out in this world when we believe in hell, when we settle into our hearts the comforting reality that God himself will right all wrongs one day far more precisely and justly than we could ever hope. This is the warning that comes from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 11, verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Guys, this is the good news of the gospel this morning. Yes, this text warns us of God's judgment. It warns us of the judgment to come for those who, whose heart is fixed on the treasures of this world rather than the treasure of Jesus Christ. Yes, there is a coming judgment that God is going to carry out. But the good news of the gospel is that this is all completely avoidable. Listen, if you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but you live in like constant fear of hell, Alex talked about this a couple weeks ago. If you live as a follower of Jesus Christ, you live in a constant fear of hell. Every, either somebody did a terrible job of discipling you or, or you've, you've really just missed the connection that God wants us to see here. Like all of this is completely avoidable. Every single bit of this is completely avoidable. You as a follower of Jesus can have confidence. You can have assurance that if you've received Jesus Christ, like there is absolutely no threat of judgment that's coming to you. That the full penalty of your judgment was poured out instead on Jesus Christ at the cross. It was Charles Spurgeon who once said back in the 19th century that this is the kind of confidence I hope you can live with. He once said, I am so sure of my salvation. I could swing out over hell on a corn stalk and sing blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. That is the type of confidence that you can find through faith in Jesus Christ. And please hear me this morning. It's not something that your money can buy. Your money in this life, it might buy you friendship. It might buy you status. It might buy you attention. It might buy you power. Listen, it might buy you the ability to get out of some things you've gotten in trouble for. It's going to be totally worthless the day that you stand before the Lord. On that day, it's not going to be able to buy you anything, but it could cost you everything. It's either going to stand with you as evidence of a heart that had been freed from material things as you lived a life of generosity for the glory of God, or it's going to stand as evidence against you that you lived a life of self-indulgence and greed and corruption, and that you did not use what the Lord had given to you. So let's close here really quickly this morning with some bad news, good news. Here's the bad news. Bad news is this. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't buy your way into heaven. Your money's no good at the door. You're in a foreign country and you need a completely different currency. You cannot buy your way into heaven. Good news, you don't have to because somebody already paid the price for you. A currency that you could never earn this side of eternity, a currency that only belonged to Jesus Christ. He was the perfect righteousness you could never ever be in this life. He died the death on the cross that you deserve and you can receive freely by faith a gift of salvation in his name. You cannot buy your way into heaven, but you don't have to because Jesus Christ has paid it all for you. And he invites you today to receive him as your greatest treasure the treasure above all treasures so that your heart can live free from the tyranny and the oppression of the treasures of this world. So you bow your heads with me as we, we close our time together this morning.
The question again is this. It's not, are you a Christian? The question is, is Jesus your treasure? The one who paid the ultimate price for your sin, the one who snatched you out of the fires of judgment, the one who frees your heart from sin and from self and from greed, is Jesus Christ your treasure? And as, as a follower of Jesus, if you're, you're a Christian, man, do, is there other ways just this stuff has a hold on your heart right now? We're in a very materialistic season right now. As, you, as you're thinking about everything that you need to buy, or you're also thinking about what you could give, how you could be a conduit of God's grace into the lives of others. Is Jesus your greatest treasure? And have you released all of your treasure to him? Are you storing up treasures here on earth? Or are you storing up treasures in heaven through faith in the name of the Son of God? Fathers, we prepare this morning to partake of the bread and of the cup as we are reminded of how Jesus Christ, our greatest treasure, had his body broken and his blood shed so that the price of our sin could be paid, so that we could find treasure in heaven. Will you remind us afresh this morning of the beauty of the gospel? Even as we, we talk through difficult things this morning, weighty things, thank you that we can live in the freedom and the confidence of knowing we belong to you that your wrath against our sin has been satisfied for all who have put their faith in you. So we look to you today. We look to Jesus as our greatest treasure. And we ask you to re release from our hearts the grip on the treasures of this world. So Father, as we pray, as we sing, as we continue to confess our sins and to repent, as we respond in the ways that you call us to respond today, will you be glorified in the praises and response of your people. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.